I'm your inner dream monologue and you're fast asleep. So I'll be quick. Great job using the Colgate Optic White Overnight Teeth Whitening Pen before bed. When used as directed, it gives you a visibly whiter smile in just seven days. So while I fly and talk to animals, you're removing teeth stains with ease. Sweet dreams. And when you wake up, keep on living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, podcast pedants. Producer Mike here with a quick heads up. In today's episode, you'll notice some banging in the background at the beginning, at the end, and at times during the interview. Now, this is not a poltergeist like I originally thought, or even the thought police banging on the door coming to cancel Callie. No, it is in fact the Builders, which Callie has referred to a few times in recent episodes. Happy listening! Welcome to Namaste Motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy and well-being collide. I'm your host, Callie Beaton, and this episode is called Do Anything You Wanna Do, in honour of the Eddie and the Hot Rods track and because of the part punk plays in this episode. The word punk was originally used to mean prostitute. As a music genre, it emerged in the 1970s, although I wasn't massively into it at that point, being more into Peter and Jane Ladybird books and skipping, as I was at the time. By 1976, it had become a major cultural phenomenon in the UK, and to quote Wikipedia, which I rarely do on the podcast, it led to a punk subculture expressing youthful rebellion through distinctive styles of clothing, such as deliberately offensive t-shirts, leather jackets, studded or spiked bands and jewellery, safety pins and bondage and SM clothes. I say. My own teenage years were in the post-punk era, during which I obsessively read NME and Melody Maker, listened to New Order, Talking Heads and The Cure on vinyl, and oh so wished I didn't live in the middle of rural Dorset, where I couldn't really see any gigs. I did, though, get to play in a local punk covers band, The Arrogant Superstars, which thankfully predated YouTube. I hope you can hear me okay. Um, Literally in the last two minutes, my neighbours downstairs have decided to get the chainsaw out. That's my guest today, comedian, actor and all-round legend, Maisie Adam. Maisie's mum was a punk and fittingly, Maisie's first acting role was as Susie Sue in the 2018 episode of Urban Myths, The Sex Pistols vs Bill Grundy. And as a nod to synchronicity, my first gig was Susie and the Banshees at the Pool Arts Centre in 1985. It's horrible. Yeah, I, was, it... I was doing um, like continuity announcing earlier and I just do it sat under a duvet, yeah. but was literally having to wait for the breaks in between her like chopping a tree down. A trained actress, Maisie initially plans to act professionally. Her first comedy gig was at the Ilkley Literature Festival in October 2016, where she went from never having done stand-up in her life to performing an hour's solo show. 
In 2017, she won the prestigious So You Think You're Funny competition, the fourth woman to have done so in its 30-year history. The next year, her first full-length Edinburgh show, Vague, was nominated for the Best Newcomer Award, and that year she won the Amused Moose National New Comic Award. She has since become a regular face and voice on TV and radio, and is basically smashing the shit out of it in comedy land. Maisie and I talked about life decisions, auditions, acting, comedy, first jobs, burger vans, epilepsy, and ice creams. I started by telling her that if she invited me on her podcast with Tom Lucy, that's a first, my own three firsts would be my first skydive, my first flight, and the first time I sold an ice cream when I was driving an ice cream van around the army barracks of Salisbury Plain. I did, Maisie. Yeah, I did. Oh my lord! So, I can see that. I can see that. Like a proper a first, like vintage right? type one. No, it wasn't a cool one. I was only um, I just got my driving license. It was um, I was only oh. seventeen, and the um, I was working for the the, the boss's daughter had the Mister Whippy van. I just had a really shit thing that was a bit like you know those scooters on three wheels, as in those mo- motorbikes on oh, three wheels. No. It was like that, only with a bit more of a cover, um, but about as stable as that. Yeah, with a hand turned chime you had to actually do it with your hand like winding up an old clock I know you get RSI and you're winding right will you come on our podcast please and talk about this (laughs) these are good I mean you know the the youngsters like you and Tom you might have done a few things but I've got the stories Maisie I was gonna say you've uh you've had a life haven't you I've had two of your lives I think almost (laughs) exactly So is it? So you got into um, obviously Tom and is Tom a similar vintage to you? Similar? He got into stand up earlier than you, right? Oh, but he's Tom, a similar age. Tom started stand up when he was like seventeen. Yeah, so ridiculous like that. Um, and he's now. I always think he's like my age, but no, he's still offensively young. Oh, is he? Like, this is Tom Lucy, by the way. And anyone yeah. listening doesn't know which Tom we're referring Sorry, to. Yes, Tom Lucy, baby Tom Lucy. I think he's like twenty three. I just thought he looked like he was twenty three because I think when he's forty three, he'll still look like he's twenty three. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah, hundred percent. But he yes. actually is twenty three. Yeah, he'll be yeah. getting ID'd until his pension comes. Yeah, in, he certainly will. We all dream yeah. of that happening. Yeah. And you, so he got into it very, very young. But you got into stand up pretty young, um, didn't you? So you, you. Got got into it in your early 20s yeah I was 22 23 I think. and then yeah four short years or five short years later you're on everything on the tv and I will say this to you I've said it to you in person but I will say it on the podcast um I've worked in the industry for most of my life and when I first saw you I saw you at the Bill Murray I think doing hysterical right. women night yeah, yeah. And I'd heard, I'd heard talk of that, maybe, Adam. <laughs> and I was like, you know, you hear there's a sort of new name and everyone's on about it. And then you see them sometimes, you're like, what? And then I was like, God, this you properly, like the minute I saw you, I was like, okay, this is, you are going to be not just a name now, but a name that will sustain. Oh, and you could quote you. me on that in 30 years, although I'll probably be dead. <laughs> but, you know, remember that I said it. So, um, so you have really quickly broken into, you won So You Think You're Funny, in your second year as a stand-up or you're all within your first year but second calendar year yeah Um, which is good because lots of people enter so you think you're funny uh when it's not even within their first year I didn't know that it's right for that that. it's right for that yeah Yeah. any competition I've found these newcomer competitions are amazing platforms for like new comedians but 
having been the new comedian that's using them like to 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 for what they used for to try and like sort of gauge how good you are i guess um and you find yourself on there with like seasoned open micers who've been doing it for three years and you're like hang on and there also there's always a, a story like oh I, I've been doing it in Canada um it's my first year doing it in the UK or I've been doing it there was a lot of that Mike the year I did it where there were people who'd like, no I don't think it was your, your first year in the UK that talking about that's the bit like the, the, that means that there's 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 rounds where somebody's having their first ever gig and somebody's having their first international gig exactly. and that's not a level playing field it is not a level so that was my excuse Maisie for not um getting through to the final but you as <laughs> a genuinely newcomer did get to the final and did win it so was that the that all went very very quickly from your first gig right yeah Um, anyone who um does comedy or listens to these kind of podcasts will know that it does normally take a certain number of gigging hours to kind of get the hang of it but it was it I never I saw you probably 18 months into you being a stand-up yeah probably was there any learning curve for you or did you literally just land running I think I think there was definitely learning curves, um, but I think I I had quite an unconventional introduction to 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 stand up comedy. There was no gigs where I lived. I, I I live in quite a sort of village in in the middle of North Yorkshire with mm-hmm. with not very many comedy scenes yeah. around it. Um, and so the first time I tried stand up was at my local um like there was a it's called Ilkley Literature Festival and it asked for it was like oh we're going to run a fringe fest so it asked for local artists and they were like you can apply to do anything you can do dance poetry spoken word uh sort of stand up comedy like was a suggestion I went, oh yeah I'll try that and I like applied and they came back and said oh yeah your slot is 8.45 till 9.45. So it's an hour long. Wow. And I thought that was normal, Kelly, because I was like, well, when you go and see a comedian who comes to like Leeds City Varieties, they were always performing for like a year and a half. So my first gig was an hour. And then I was literally just writing to any play, like, you've, you know, all the comedy forums on Facebook and stuff, was just applying for all of those and going wherever I could. I just need um, to go back to that hour. So given that most of us take a couple of years before we can, you know, weave together an hour, and even then it's slightly desperate with a lot of pausing <laughs> and um, PowerPoint usage, how did you <laughs> feel, how did you fill an hour? I, I honestly don't know. I don't know. And I, I'm not saying it was an hour of gold. Believe you me, it was not. Um, but it was an hour and no one actually threw a sheep at you. No, and it it went it went all right. It went like it must have gone all right because nobody walked out and it you know I I I mean I never watched footage back which I absolutely should but I've got the recording of it and and it was well, I was sending it to promoters, but sending an hour-long footage to people being like, can I do an open ten at your open mic night? Here's an hour of me. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't remember sort of having to make a, more of an effort to, to fill it, which is probably a red flag. But um, I, I just wrote whatever I thought was funny and... and 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 I don't know how I remembered it either because now I, d- I go and do work in progresses and I'm I'm think overthinking every little joke and I, I, I yeah I don't know how I did it I I think that first gig was probably um, if I did that now it would petrify me but I I didn't have anything to compare it to whereas obviously now we're like oh 
you know, there's five spots and there's ten spots. I didn't know there was such thing as a yeah, five yeah. spot. So you didn't so, know what you didn't know and you just got on with no, it. No, exactly. So when, when you talk about learning curves, I didn't have any of those like, oh, I'm learning how to do a five, I'm learning how to do a ten. I just sort of went in both feet first and then sort of navigated it from there. But it, it almost meant that, that those open mic nights um, where you're doing five minutes on a bill with 18 other comedians... I found less intimidating because I thought, well, I've done, I've done an hour in a theatre in the middle of rural Yorkshire. You've infiltrated the Hay Literary it's Festival a, equivalent. Like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? So it's like, so suddenly a purpose-built comedy venue where you've got like actual other, you've got an MC introducing you on and everything. It felt like Wembley. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and like Beyonce's coming home gig. And did yeah. you, so, so writing, like, so you you, st- you were um, an actor, so you, well, you still are, but you trained with the National Youth Theatre. Yeah, as a kid, like, which was just a sort of summer course thing that you'd, you'd go on to. But it, it was definitely a, a sort of perhaps a pivotal moment and sort of solidifying that performance. That performance was a valid career option mm-hmm. because I I loved my school. I had a great time there, but it was very much a um, vo- anything vocational was sort of seen to be like, well, what's your backup? Come on, what's your backup? And yeah, I think yeah. going to the National Youth Theatre helped me see... Um, that it was a really viable option. I think the only other theatre I'd seen was stuff in my hometown, which was always like a, a touring production of Dial M for Murder. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, or a, yeah. you know those sort of like local theatre company. And then going down to London and and living there for two weeks with other like-minded kids who were dead passionate about theatre and seeing everything from like we saw West End productions to like outside, you know, site-specific stuff and um, sort of. Uh, things where they took the audience on a tour and incorporated them. It, like I saw every type of theatre you could see in that too, and it definitely opened my eyes to all of the different types of performance and that it was a, a valid career option. And that led to me thinking, oh, I want to go into acting. And so were your went... parents, you're not from that kind of background, right? So you're no, not from a no. sort of show-busy thespian no, background? No, God, no, not at all, no. Um, my mum and dad were very supportive. I was very lucky that they were supportive with it. Um, but no, my mum worked in education um, and my dad sells furniture. So it was very like, no, no nothing like that. Um, and then I went to drama school and um, it was it was great, but it made me realise uh, that I perhaps didn't want to be just an actor. I, by the, but I went into it like, oh god, this is what I want to do, and loved my first year. And by the end of third year, I was, I was, I was itching at the walls, ready to leave, and not a hundred percent sure if if acting was for me. And, and why was that? That wasn't along. that wasn't because you didn't think you could, was it? Was it more that you didn't think that was the world you wanted to be in, or what changed your mind? Um, gosh, I think a lot of different factors. Um, drama school. Uh, tends like comedy tends to attract um a certain type wankers. of person. Yeah, that, I would say that, and and it was quite difficult being around that for three intense years. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot of people who had the biggest role in the school play, and then suddenly they're all in a class together, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of egos, and there's a lot of uh, um stepping over each other and also it is just and and aside from 
that those people it's also an industry which by its very nature is brutal and mm-hmm. you're judged on on aesthetic half the time mm-hmm. um and so um a lot of those factors meant that by the time we were graduating and you you're trying to find an agent and stuff and you're like god it's you know that scene in la la land where she goes in for the audition and it's just 10 other girls that look exactly yeah. like her there was just a lot of that and you're like i'm not actually being judged on on a lot of the stuff I've I've spent three years learning and honing my craft of, and 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 all of the stuff that sort of got me excited when I did the National Youth Theatre of learning all these different techniques, and I'm I wasn't even getting in the room mm-hmm. to, to to showcase it, so it was quite frustrating. Um, and so I moved back home with my parents still like well I don't know what else I would want to do because and this you know, is what age what age were you at this point 22 when I graduated because it's funny hearing you talking about I went to Goldsmiths and did drama and I sort of yeah. I usually say you know that I really I got there and um, I realized I was the best you know at school but I wasn't the best at once I got there I wasn't good enough at it but actually if I'm honest and hearing you say that for me, it, I knew a few actors that were in their sort of late 20s into their 30s, some of whom were really successful, had sort of jobbing parts yeah. in big sitcoms yeah. back then, you know, London's Burning, The Bill, the big ones then. This is back in the 80s. And even they were being judged so much on the sort of superficial things, and particularly women were being judged on yeah. that. And I, yeah. if I'm honest, the reason I bailed so young on it was because I couldn't face being judged on my appearance. I didn't have the confidence it's really hard. It's to be really judged. Hard. And I didn't look like I didn't look like the kind of classic yeah. lead. And yeah. I knew that that was going to, and you, and you can get character parts when you're at college, but you're not going to get character parts yeah. when you're a 21 year old in the real world. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Hearing you talk about that actually makes me realize it was in my case too, less about whether or not I could do it, but more the fact that never mind finding your own voice on stage, you're not even getting a chance to get onto the stage if you, you don't, don't even look get right. a chance to give the voice again. I remember yeah. like my first audition out of drama school was for an advert and I knew I'd bossed it. Like I knew I'd, I'd done really, really well. And um, they, they were saying all of that as well. And then they brought in this guy who I had to like do it a, along with. And he was about five foot eight, but they'd already somebody had like one of the other casting people had already secured him so he was because a given. they because he was secured and then I'm five foot 11 and because I'm I'm taller than him it just didn't work so then they were like yeah we'd really like you just it just doesn't look right on camera so you're like so you're just gonna go with somebody who does exactly what yeah. I've done but you know and, and I get it I get it but but it's so down to there was there was nothing I could have done in terms of giving a better performance. You know, you can't shave three inches off your head. I've tried, mm-hmm. yeah. um, but it's uh, it's just one of those one of those industries, really. Um, so you went back home at twenty two, having thought yeah. you'd act, and you were already were you writing by then? So no, you, you weren't. No. So, so you got into writing when you got no. into comedy. Yeah, I I, I moved back home and. Um, was sort of I you know didn't have an agent so was was actually using the National Youth Theatre's casting page for castings um because that was you didn't need an agent for that um and I got one job from that which was still I think the best acting job I've ever had which was to play Susie Sue in this thing with the sex like about the sex pistols oh it doesn't and get it, better than that Maisie. it was you so well cool retire. it was so cool yeah. and that's the kind of thing is I was like well I've suddenly got this thing out of nowhere, yeah. which was just off me doing like my own hard work of like scanning the National Youth Theatre 
um, casting pages, going to myself. Like, I was the only person at the audition that didn't have an, you know, and you know what it's like. You've got to stand in front of the camera and say your name, your location, and your agent. And I was the only one saying, don't have an agent. Yeah. And still got it. And I, and it kind of, I loved the experience. It was it was amazing. Um, Steve Pemberton was in mm-hmm. it as well. So mm-hmm. I was like, oh God, I'm like really with some sort of idols of mine here. And then I thought, I want to be in an industry where that happens, where it's my it's my hard graph that gets mm-hmm. me there, rather than waiting for the... I mean, people always say to actors, wait, don't wait for the phone to ring. But a lot of it is that, because it's mm-hmm. not in your control. Mm-hmm. It's so dependent on other people. And that was the thing about drama school as well, is that I would graph my arse off and... and turn up and, and and I've you know you're off book by the date that you're meant to be off book and you've 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 done all of the research you were meant to do for your character and then you're in a scene with three people who can't be asked mm-hmm. and just taking it as a dos and mm-hmm. so it's so dependent on other people mm-hmm. and I think after landing a job off my own back I thought I don't I don't need to be worrying about finding an agent I don't need to be worrying about going to these casting commercials you know trying to try you know trying to make myself look smaller so that I can fit in with somebody else. Do your own thing. And then I thought, well, what's what's more your own thing than than stand-up comedy? You're in charge of what you say. You're in charge of, of how you perform it. Um, if it goes well, you get all the praise. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't go well, you can't blame it on any other factors. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had no idea of how to get into it. I just knew I'd always loved it. I'd never been brave enough to do it. But here I was, having spent three years of my life working and working and working to, to, to get good at something, to then sort of realise it's actually out of my hands. And I think it was a bit of a reclaiming thing that I wanted to do of like, no, I I like performing. I'm good at performing. I think I know what good comedy is, but but let's find out. And I think if I'd have done that first gig and, you know, died on my arse, then maybe it would have been back to the drawing room. But instead, I, I did that gig, and um, whatever feeling I got from when I did the National Youth Theatre with acting, it was that times a million. It, it was just an absolute buzz, and I, I, from then I didn't want to do anything different. And did you, it's interesting hearing you say, you know, literally trying to make yourself smaller, but I guess in a way that is what you're doing when you're trying to fit into someone else's mould and trying to be someone, you don't look like that, you don't want to be like that, you're playing by rules that don't feel good to you. You literally do sort of have to diminish yourself a bit to be able to cope with doing that. And I guess with stand-up, it's the opposite, isn't it? You're you're trying to turn up the volume on the bit of yourself that's funny. You amplify yourself. You make almost a caricature of yourself, whereas when you're in a in a play or something like you have to be wary of where everybody else is stood on stage and to sort of make sure you're adapting to that make sure you're not overdoing it make sure you're not underdoing it make sure you've got chemistry with this person that you're working with um it's so reliant on other people in the room whereas stand up when we get introduced on stage it's just you and that microphone and 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 it's just you that's the focus um, I know that sounds really egotistic. It makes it sound like I'm one of those people that was like, I just fancied being more centre stage. But um, I, I just, um, I was fed up of it being in other people's hands of how stuff went. And I, I just wanted, just wanted to do it myself. And if you think about one of the things I sort of think having you and I got into it at opposite ends of the scale. So my first gig was at 45 and uh, your first gig was somewhat younger than that. And there are advantages and disadvantages to both ways of us doing that, I guess. And one of the things that I definitely find is there's so much material I've got to write about. There are so many things. And so and I've often sort of thought, would I have had 
it would obviously be different material, but would I have that depth and breadth of material? So what is it like as somebody who's a completely different life phase in terms of just hunting for the right? I mean, I've seen you, so I know you've got great material, but in terms of what you want to write about and talk about. Yeah, and that sometimes definitely is the worry, especially with Edinburgh's coming up, where yeah. there's that pressure to have... How many an, big, a, meaningful a, moments a have you had? Yeah, you need like an arc and you need a story and you're like, well, bloody hell, I haven't... I'm, yeah. I've done chance. much yet. Yeah, do you know what I mean? And you're like, oh god, every a lot of like Edinburgh shows are sort of about sort of big breakups of relationships or or, or really hard hitting moments. And you're like, oh, I think I think they're further down. I think they're yet to yet to. It's your midlife through. crisis. It's just not going to happen <laughs> yet, no matter how much you want it to. Um, but I think I think I I think of the 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 comedy I like watching, um, and I think what 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 hit what struck a chord with me was was people sort of reflecting f- funny things about what I could relate to. And so that's what I try to do with, with my comedy is sort of, I think, you know, you do see a lot of um, sort of my parents' age experience, you know, the life with, with um, sort of family life covered. But I try to do a bit more that those young sort of 20s, the raucous years. And um, I was also like mad awkward growing up so i quite like physically awkward or socially awkward um i think physically awkward i did all right socially like i had a nice group of friends Mm -hmm. and 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 i wouldn't say uh i wouldn't say i was like extroverted but i was maybe the funny one in my friendship group Mm -hmm. um but no physically awkward um again i think it comes back to that making yourself i was constantly trying to sort of see where i fit in around the dynamic of a group and and maybe that's why I struggled as well with with stuff at, at, at drama school is that thing of being in a group I think I'm just a I hate group projects anything like that I think I'm just better on it but is that like, about belonging then because I, I was wondering what it's like again in our industry um I sometimes feel and I don't know if everyone feels like this but sometimes and particularly since the pandemic I've thought well, mm. I just don't really belong anywhere I don't really belong with other everyone's kind of got their best mates in comedy and I sort of feel like I just kind of float about and don't belong that's anywhere interesting. that's but interesting where, where are you on that sort of thought um, about the belonging spectrum within the comedy mm-hmm. industry yeah mm-hmm. I think so uh I sort of decided very early on because I could see the similarities between people who are in comedy and people who were at drama school and I'd sort of I think drama school was almost like a an apprenticeship to that. Yeah. Like I learned a lot of Latin. And so I decided very early on I would never date a comedian because mm-hmm. I saw how incestuous the industry is mm-hmm. and that awkwardness of turning up to a gig and somebody used to date so-and-so mm-hmm. and all of that. Um, and then I also kind of clocked that there are a lot of... it's not I wouldn't describe it as cliquey, but there's a lot of friendship circles within the comedy industry yeah people for whom their whole life is comedy so the same yeah. they gig with people they live with people and that's it's everything. it that's yeah. it and um personally that isn't for me um I think as well when our job is to is to do comedy and and reflect real life and normal experience and normal life I think it's quite I'm not sure how helpful it is mm-hmm. to live work socialize with other comedians um and you see it sometimes people make like in jokes about the industry on stage and the audience is sort of like what we don't we don't understand it um and as i say i've got i've got a really nice group of mates 
um most who were real mates, mates and not, yeah. not that com- comedians couldn't be but that's that's mates outside of the comedy world yeah who who like I've been mates with since school and yeah that's not to say like there's not mates in the comedy industry but I think I think it would be fair to say that I perhaps make a conscious effort to to not hang out too outside of the realms of work with comedians Namaste, motherfuckers. and do you think people say that kind of comedy and these kind of jobs are no one really fits in it's all kind of outliers and people who and in the case of some younger comedians who've never really had any other job you know that's all all anyone's done and I guess to a degree performance is what you've always done right whether it was acting or whether it's comedy and I sometimes wonder then I also think and again I don't know how this is for you being one of those people who's always performed but I sometimes think god loads of the stuff I've learned about how to be in the world has been from having to do office jobs and having to do this and that and the other that isn't that and I and I again I wonder it's a sort of blessing and a curse I guess from either end of the scale for me or for you you could argue the case either way but what is it like with all those things and not learning how to kind of socialise and to get the corners rubbed off you and that all happening on stage. Yeah, well, I was just going to say, I was like, well, I'm, I mentioned the first acting job I got. There wasn't much else apart from that. So when I was living with my mum and dad, so I was So you were working, doing all the kind of jobs I was working loads of... I was in like with a temp agency. When I found out I'd got through to the semi-finals of So You Think You're Funny, I was in a burger van um, <laughs> and, and serving like... Um, Pims for people who were watching Wimbledon on the big Fancy screen. Fancy burger in, van, then, just well, to be clear. Well, <laughs> like a burger van, you could serve Pims for people who were watching Wimbledon on the big screen in Millennium Square in Leeds. Um, and then it was really, yeah, it was really weird. You'd, you'd give them a Pims and then you'd have to be like, and would you like a, we had like burgers <laughs> or hot dogs. So it was like, it was really fancy. And then you'd be like, I, there's also this greasy bit back here. but With a bit of ever, cow in it, but I can't yeah, guarantee. yeah. Um, so, so that's when oh, you no, heard you've got through to say you think you're funny. Yeah, flipping burgers. Yeah. Slipping burgers. Nobody ever asked for a burger. I was quite happy to just do. Um, in fact, we did ice creams. I just, oh, I ate so many ninety nine flakes. I used um, to eat whole Viennettas by the end oh, of the day because so I would be good. so. It was hard. It was hard. I was working on commission only. Were you, or did you have? No, 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 no. no I wasn't was salaried pain. or waged. Yeah, mine was all commission only. You'd kill to sell an old lady a six pack of Cornettos. Oh, that was a good. Dr- that was the jackpot. Yeah, it was yeah. the jackpot. But normally. You'd be getting like little kids wanting a sort of milky yeah. whatever they're called little yeah. milk bar lolly for like 12 pence you'd be like oh but that's... I think you're right those jobs like they do I, most of my like uh, well a lot of my material is from like when I worked um I've like as soon as I turned 16 um I, I got a job uh I was working in retail on weekends I worked as a cleaner after school on Monday Wednesdays and Fridays at the school and then I was also like promoting a nightclub that I wasn't yet old enough to go to, <laughs> which was on commission. I got 50p for every person who said my name on the guest list. Did you? Uh, but yeah, but if you, that mean like you don't, you just have to get most of your school year to like try and get into the nightclub. And yeah, you'd make a pretty penny. Yeah, it was <laughs> it was great. Yeah, and the um and did you in terms of the um of sort of going through that that stage in your life? So when yeah. I because you because you got into this straight out the gates pretty successfully so you and you've been on every panel show going and again you're somebody sometimes you see kind of the acts that everyone's talking about getting all of those opportunities but not really coping with them so you see people getting it too soon and in your case it isn't too soon you're you're able to more than hold your own in absolutely all of those environments and you don't I've always um I, you know you and I don't know each other well we've gigged together a bit and I've seen you do a lot of stuff 
but I was really struck when you and I ended up um, backstage uh, in Brighton doing one of our first gigs after the lockdown. And it was quite, I think both you and I, it was at the yeah. Warren in Brighton. I think both of us thought it was going to be a really tiny, shitty little kind of rim above a pub type vibe and then it was a proper it oh, looked like a real up, it? It, it was like a proper sort of festival stage yeah. and real lots of real people coming which normally we'd have been like oh this is awesome this is like a real gig and I think we were and I was really I was feeling totally like I shouldn't be here I'm an imposter I've forgotten how to be a comic and I was actually really surprised to see you feeling like that because I just don't oh, think you would terrified. have those feelings so is that was that a sort of rare thing for you to be feeling like what if I'm going to get found out now or is that something you you more familiar with no it's definitely something that's happened I guess like in the last uh well yeah through, since since the pandemic because I think we've always had that security of like you get onto the circuit you get you start to build a name for yourself and you're like okay I know what I'm doing now and then for it to just disappear you forget how often you were doing it and how often you're brain was being exercised by just being on stage mm. every night so that then those first few gigs when um the last lockdown ended i was um i was ha- like hands shaking backstage um the the first one back which you've never had which is given that you did that first hour with none of that that's it's yeah, funny to I'd, think that I'd you say, had that belatedly yeah yeah and and i think it's because i'd never lost it i'd, I'd never lost the job you know the job or the 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 opportunity to work before that it was just always more than what I'd had before more than what I'd had and then suddenly it had sort of felt like a house of cards really and then you're having to build it up again so you're having to retrain your brain for for something that you thought you'd left behind that all those jittery sort of first few gig nerves um and I've still I think I've still got them a bit now I think as well that you you know like you mentioned the the panel shows that I've been lucky enough to do well a lot of those have been in this pandemic and those are filmed in a studio with no audience a lot of the time because of covid mm-hmm. so uh, there's definitely been that thing of being like well I'm I'm doing all right on the telly but that's not in front of real life people and that's mm-hmm. ultimately what this job is so there's been a bit of a fear of 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 being like god I'm you know, my name's getting out there and I, I look like I'm doing well, but have I have I still got it? So is there the, an expectation then? Because I know it's a, a bless again, sorry to keep using the phrase blessing and a curse. I need to get out more. But it's um but when you think about the pressure, so on the plus side, the more and more you get known and yours is already a name that people are very, very familiar with. You've got a great profile. So people are if they hear you're on the bill or they see you're on the bill, they may well be like, Oh God, I love her. I've seen her on, you know, Mock the Week or whatever. So on the one hand, the ground's soft because they already have bought into who you are. But on the other hand, is there that expectation then? Because you are still fairly new. You haven't been doing yeah. it for years. Yeah. And people are seeing you do all these shows and then they're coming to watch you at a gig and they'll be like, well, yeah, you should be as you know as good as you know Frankie Boyle, whoever I might see, because you're on the telly. Yeah. So there's yeah. a great expectation on you. Yeah, I've definitely... Um, and, and if not from then, from me, um, I've found myself being harder on myself in that like, if I used to not have a particularly great gig I always was sort of in the back of my I mean I'd hate it but in the back of my head sort of the next morning you'd go it's all right you're in your first four years mate it's like you know you'll it's it's okay whereas now I'm a little bit like you can't you can't you know I'm, I'm a bit harder on myself and it's something I've really had to to like grapple with and 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 sort of give myself cut myself some slack um because I it doesn't change the fact that I've only been going four and a half years and 
and not every game. Well, like it. It's just uh, you want to smash every gig mm-hmm. because you're aware that people might have seen you on the time. I mean, it's not. There's no way of, do, of saying this without sounding like I think I'm uh, the next big thing. I don't. Come on, go but, full but, but asshole. No, but you're 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 aware that if you've been on the telly, especially sort of in a time where people have been inside with no other option but to watch your mug on the telly, that then when they come and see you, you're you're a bit like, oh god, they're expecting a, they're expecting a higher standard is what I tell myself, whereas. I used to think, you know, well, they don't know who you are anyway. It's better to, uh, you, you know, you, you pleasantly surprise people because they don't know what to expect. And then mm-hmm. you come out and you're somebody they've not heard of and you, you do all right. Whereas you can see sometimes now in the audience, people go, oh, I think we've seen her. And then you think, oh, right, this, right you better be good, mate. Come on. And so, you've done, yeah, in amidst of all of that, so the, the kind of mixed bag of being recognised and having a profile, and then you've gone for a haircut that's had more attention <laughs> yeah. than anyone's haircut yeah. in the whole of... Um, and is that, so you, that does make you very recognisable. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah, it do, yeah. even with a mask on, it's quite, it's quite distinctive. It's quite distinctive. Um, and that's, it's ironic in a way, isn't it, that you moved away from acting because people were making opinions based on yeah. how you look and then you're there making literally a living out of your wit and your words and people are like, but what about your hair? I know, <laughs> you're I like, know. What about my hair? I know. Well, the hair was just a personal uh, choice thing. I think, I don't know if I said to you backstage, but it, it like my mum growing up, she was, um, she was a punk and so, and still is to be honest, like she's proper cool. And I look at photos of her through through the years and she's had you know every haircut under the sun and I think the pandemic kind of made you realize like oh life's too short to just keep going with that same haircut you've always had mate. it's just I've always wanted to do it and never never been brave enough to do it because life was just plodding along and then I thought if you don't do it now where you're legally required to stay inside so if you don't <laughs> like it like the most people that's going to see it is like your neighbours when you take the bins out. Um, you can you can grow it back out, um, but I did it and I loved it. And yeah, like does it, your mum approve? Is it a mum? Yeah, yeah, condones? my mum loves it. Yeah, yeah, she must have loved it when you got the Susie Sue part, didn't she? Oh, Wasn't that she, like mum's oh, dreams come true? Like that's yeah, it now. Yeah. You're going to have to go some to. That's far better for her than you doing what the week. Right? Oh, hundred percent. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. I'm kind of with her on that. that. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely the coolest thing. We'll try and find a link to it to put in the show notes. And did you, um, I did want to um, just talk to you. I know you talk about it on stage, so I'm guessing it's all right to talk about it. Um, epilepsy. So you, yeah. so when when did you, when did you get diagnosed? Or when did, I guess you find out you, you've got epilepsy when you have an attack or how does it, how do you find out? No, that, so, so I was um, about 14 years old with it. I think about 13, 14, um, sort of in the midst of puberty. And my mum and dad said that um, occasionally I would sort of roll my eyes back whilst in mid-conversation. My kids used to do that and I used to say, stop being so cheeky and piss off to your bedroom. So for ages, my mum and dad thought I was like being a bit sassy um, because I was sort of going through puberty. They were just sort of like, oh God, you know. We've got an eye roller. Yeah, yeah. And then it was kind of happening at bits where I wasn't even in a mood and they were like, "What you know? What's going?" On? And I and I would go, "What what are you talking about? I didn't do anything." And and I did. You don't know when you've had, they're called absence seizures, so they last for like five seconds, or mine were. And I didn't know what happened. You still stay up, right? You know, you're not having the sort of fit that people talk. And about. you wouldn't know you'd had that happen. No, because, no, no, yeah. wouldn't know I'd, I'd happen. And then um, my mum's mate, who's a nurse, said, "Oh, 
go, you know, go and go to the neurology department and and get, get you know get an appointment, and get that checked out. And um, they knew within, I think I had one at the appointment, and they were just like, oh yeah, it's it's epilepsy. And at that point, they said she'll probably grow out of it. So I was put on like these tablets, and then said, you know, come back when you're sort of seventeen, and we'll we'll give it a go because they they said it was like a puberty thing. Mm-hmm. But then I came back at seventeen. Um, took me off the tablets and had what most people would call a fit, which, you know, on the floor and, and sort of shaking. and They'd call a fit, not an that. attack, as I wrongly just called it. Yeah, no, um, I'm, so... I, it, there's so many different... I'm I'm not 100%. I, I go on, like, epilepsy podcasts and I have to be corrected on what I'm to call it. I'm always so... nervous as, yeah, as a mum championing having an autistic kid and it does change what you can say and I'm like, yeah, oh, well, that's really with evolving. it. I didn't know you had to, to say it's that. It's always evolving. I remember being at school and saying, oh, let's do a brainstorm and somebody was like you can't say brainstorm it's, it's offensive to people with epilepsy and I was yeah. like I've got epilepsy <laughs> yeah, I, I suggested it, it. Um, <laughs> so you it's... had um, so you managed and it's also very impressive that you managed to have um, an episode when you were being assessed because normally you go in with a problem don't you to the doctor and it's the first thing that will stop you having the problem yeah. so yeah, you managed yeah. to actually bring it to, you've always been good at so performing I, I when the that... pressure was on <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. I knew my cue you were I knew like what's required cue. oh I've yeah. prepped my life for this exactly um, I uh so yeah, then you so, had so it, you came off the medication and then you had a, your first sort of had, had proper a, fit. I had a full on one and I I spoke about this sort of journey I guess in my first show vague because that's what the doctors described the um absent seizures as they'd be like oh you just go a bit vague for a bit. Um I'm sure when, that's more what you say about your great auntie Dora isn't I know, it? Then I know. Like, yeah, yeah. But when they when the, when I had the first like fit or or it's 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 technical term is a tonic clonic seizure but you can understand why Let's go with it's, attack, easy, like it's easier to just say fit and go yeah. like out with your hands yeah. um so uh when i had my first tonic clonic seizure um i was on my own and i was uh i i, I didn't tell my parents about it because i was sort of that rubbish age of, of 17 you want your independence is everything to you and I thought if I if I tell my mum and dad they'll wrap they, you up in cotton wool yeah I was yeah. like they won't let me you know I had like a holiday to Zanti booked with my mates on like one of those horrific booze cruise holidays you know Leeds festival for which is like a five-day bender yeah um I was going on nights out all the time proper party animal and I, I just you were like this that, is no place for disclosed epilepsy do you know what I mean I just and, and that was that was the most important thing to me at that point in my life, as a parent that... I'm feeling slightly jittery I'm thinking oh my god what if my daughter had learned know, about that how would I I know cope? I know I know and and I I'm ashamed to say I didn't um I didn't tell them about it for about three years um and as long and as did I took... you have some close shaves along the yeah yeah along the way then you must have done as long as I took my meds I was okay but of course there was a couple of times where I'd been out the night before come in at 4am um sleep is a massive thing for my epilepsy so as long as you've had sort of six hours sleep I find mm-hmm. I'm, I'm okay but there was a few times where I was coming in at 4am and then I had to be up at eight for my shift in in, in retail mm-hmm. and I I was I was having seizures and just not telling remember I had one I was bruised all over my face and I just told my mum and dad that I'd fallen down the the, the stairs to the stock room at, at work um and was just really stupidly secretive about it. Um, but not secretive because you thought it was something to be ashamed of, just on a pragmatic level, I want to go out and live my life. Pragmatic, yeah. and then um And then I went to uni and was on top of my bed, so didn't have didn't have one for five years. 
and then got to that point where moved back in with mum and dad, decided to give stand-up comedy a go. Uh, so my first gig was in October 2016, and in April of 2017, I went to the Bath Comedy Festival mm-hmm. to, to to do some gigs, and I'd forgotten to take my tablets that morning, and I got off at Bristol Meads, Bristol Temple Meads to switch trains, and the next thing I knew, like I was just on the platform, two paramedics around wow. me, like. Bristol Temple Meads. Yeah, it's probably the yeah. most exciting thing that's ever happened at Bristol Temple Meads. I know, I know. Meads, I'm so pretty well sure done. there's a pretty sure there's a blue plaque there I've now. I've seen it there. There yeah. is. Yeah. So you end up um, being paramedicked out. Yeah. Uh, from the and what happened? So, so is it? They were like, "Oh, can we ring somebody?" I was like, "Absolutely not. I don't know anybody. I'm an orphan. I've yeah, never been yeah, given yeah. birth to." Um, and so then I went to Bath and did this gig, and I. Honestly, Callie, I cannot remember the gig at all. I don't. I couldn't tell you where I'm it was. I'm feeling like I'm about to have some kind of like seizure hearing about this. It's, it's mad, isn't it? Yeah. I couldn't tell you what material I did. I couldn't tell you what the venue was. And you was. were so vulnerable at that point. You were so a, young, a young person who just like had a properly frightening yeah. medical episode. Yeah. And then you're trying to go on stage and act as if you're invincible. Yeah, yeah. And wow. and I and I knew that a huge part of stand up, which as I say by that point I'd only been doing six months, but I was absolutely head over heels in love with it. I knew a huge part of it was things like getting trains Turning all over the country up, on your yeah. own places, and I thought this isn't something that you can just keep to yourself. So I I came home from Bath the next day, and um, got all the way home back in Yorkshire and just sort of told me mum and dad everything. Told them what had happened when I was seventeen. Told them that I hadn't ever told them about it my mum was absolutely apoplectic was she yeah yeah but then she sort of was like she was really angry with me and then was sort of like I do I do understand it but angry because she'd have just felt that she absolutely needed to tiger mum you and you never gave her the chance rather than yeah 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 um but it was um yeah so it's sort of a, a strange journey I've had with it of kind of um i guess i i guess like gen it sounds really mad but i think i was in denial about having epilepsy for most of my teens yeah um well it was an inconvenient I, truth wasn't it it was you, an you inconvenient wanted, yeah. truth that's exactly it that's exactly yeah. it yeah. yeah and did you and is there now a risk so being somebody that is on stage and obviously mm. for the length of time that you're on from 20 minutes to an hour mm-hmm. it, it, is there a risk if you keep on top of your medication? There's no risk that that could happen during no, a show. No, no. So I'm not photosensitive. So lights, you know, when you think of all of the, like you say, festival venues we mm-hmm. do with all of the smoke machine, those ones where it's smoke machines and flashing lights that you come out to, I'd be absolutely grand. As I say, the main thing is sleep. So as you know, sometimes with our job, you can come home at one, two in the morning mm-hmm. because the, you know, you've had to get three trains to get mm-hmm. home and whatnot. Um, and it's just. It's just making sure that you've not got something booked in for eight the next morning. And I have to say, um, where, this will sound like I'm doing a horrific plug, but after Say You Think You're Funny, I got signed quite quickly. And, and you're I with no, P- PBJ, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, I'm with a woman called Claire at, at PBJ. And, and I have to say, I, I've since learned that not every agent is uh, a great one. And, and you know, uh, and some people have not great relationships I've had bad experiences with agents but Claire signed me after so you think you're funny and she's been invaluable for a number of reasons but I think one of the main things I'm I'm so grateful to her for is that she completely understands that side of things mm-hmm. so if she sees in my diary that I've got a gig that means I'm not going to be back to like and there's somebody going can she do this breakfast show you know she won't she won't even make me go oh, I'm really sorry but I should be looking at it. she'll just say no Maisie can't do any time mm. until after that and 
it's so reassuring and nice as a young woman in comedy to have somebody in your corner like that um to be quite well not a young woman a new woman to to comedy to be quite new to something and be um I say woman because you often feel like you have to say yes to everything just to keep up. Because you were the fourth um, ever woman to win So You Think You're Funny, is that right? I think so, yeah. 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 In and 30 years. In which, 30 years. Yeah, and we can't yeah. really pretend it's only been in the last few years that there have been uh, many, many good female comics. No, no, so, Which says it all really, doesn't it, about the kind of industry we're in. And yeah. it is also interesting, and again, we won't get um, too far into the heavy subject of the whole kind of Me Too thing, but it is. it, it was a real shock to me coming into it later to realise over the last couple of years with all that's come out, quite how perilous so many aspects of our business are particularly oh. I think for younger women coming into it yeah um and yeah. that's so having an it's funny because I've known um PBJ who obviously founded PBJ management I've known him forever yeah. and there is it's funny how different agencies have different sort of value systems in a way and it's kind of lovely to know there is that yeah. yeah, that there is a there is an agency where obviously they are in it for the money, but they are also in it not to kind of exploit you. That's that's a nice thing to know in an industry yeah. which can be quite yeah. exploitative like ours. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. And and not to sort of sound like you're looking for a parent figure in this thing, but it, my my mum is my go to person for everything. Like most people's mums are, but but I go to her with like anything that I need advice for. But she doesn't know anything about the comedy industry. Yeah. Um, and I do think it's quite important with an agent, and I certainly have that with Claire, that she kind of looks after me as much as a person as she does yeah. a, a client. Yeah. Um, and I mean that in terms of, you know, not making my epilepsy feel like a massive thing. Um, sort of this, this about, be, I don't want to say about being a woman in comedy, but as in she's aware of what that is she thinks about what it's what like to be presents. in your shoes yeah and I think you know what like yeah. and we talked about a minute ago we talked about you know our job sometimes means that we're coming home at one two in the morning well that sometimes you know doesn't help when you're when you're a woman especially on the open mic circuit when you're like we you know you can't afford to get a hotel you have to run through a cut through to get the last train or something and now you're in Brighton I guess as well a lot of the gigs are London so you've got that that yeah. journey to get to yeah, a, lot, yeah. a lot of the gigs yeah. that there are. Um, yeah. I suspect also PBJ will be thinking, much as they're being very empathetic, they'll be like, we're pretty sure Maisie's in for the long haul. We're going to make this bloody work. <laughs> we got look after Yeah, we've got three decades, yeah, for, three decades yeah. plus to earn well. Oh, God, um, am I in a conservatorship, do you think? <laughs> it does yeah. sound like it, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> yeah, Brittany. Yeah, I. Uh, <laughs> but you're, you're completely right about it. Like, I was watching an old episode of mock the week the other night one of them ones that's on like one in the morning yeah on one of the, like the high up channels and it was just it was uh six old white blokes yeah and yeah. i was like oh my god i, I mean when I, know, they brought in... I know there's still work to do with mock the week but 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 when you look at when it was just basically like six versions of my dad and, and I mean, when they had in... that directive to bring in you know have a woman on every panel show and it wasn't i can't remember when it was but i remember i was still working in the industry then and it was seen to be a lot and then everyone was like well how are we going to find them and it's like well you won't have any trouble finding them because there's tons of really yeah. amazing women yeah, it's yeah. not like the clubs if they don't have women on the bill it isn't because the women don't exist yeah. it's because they've not brought them onto the bill Namaste, what would you pick as your namaste motherfucking moment, Maisie? I think um, I I think like I know it's quite easy to 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 pick this one, but I think it's when I did that first gig, 
um, because it was so jumping in with both feet that, uh, and I say that with hindsight, I don't think at the time I knew I was jumping in. I think at the time I just thought it was like, oh, I'll try knitting or I'll try, mm-hmm. you know, I'll tr- I'll try joining a choir. It was just something like, <laughs> I was like, oh, I'll just try this. Um, but I think I've never felt a, a sort of feeling after something as visceral as that. And I know that sounds really wanky, but when you've when you've trained for something in for three years thinking that's what you were meant to do and you get to the end and you're, you're a bit deflated because you're like I don't think it is but I, uh, but at the same time I don't know what is the right thing and I guess there's all of those feelings of having to move back in with mum and dad and and feeling you know and taking all these temp jobs and you're looking around at again it's a bit like comedy is the acting where ever you're comparing yourself so I was looking at all the other people who come straight out of drama school and immediately got signed by an agent and was just thinking and you were hiding I've... epilepsy in the back of a burger yeah man. exactly exactly yeah, good times and I, I was really like god this is this has gone tits up and then I did that stand-up gig and it just completely recharged the battery completely filled me with a new um, drive to, to, to perform and I knew exactly how I wanted to perform and what I wanted to do with it it was a real it was a it was a real moment I think yeah what was the feeling that you had that night just but like properly buzzing and and mm-hmm. I I think a lot of it was that I couldn't put my finger on what it was because I'd never felt it before mm-hmm. but I just felt like like when you were a kid and you went on that roller coaster that you were petrified to go on, mm-hmm. but once you'd gone on it and you came off, you were so glad you did, mm-hmm. and you can't stop talking about it, and you're running through to go and see like what the picture is of you, and, mm-hmm. and you're you're talking about it for a week at school after that. It was like that. It was properly adrenaline mm-hmm. um, buzz, mm-hmm. and and you couldn't wait to get up and do it again. No, and after you've had a feeling like that, you're not suddenly then going to be like, well, maybe I'll do it, and but I might, you know, I might keep checking in. You're like, no, I'm going to go full throttle on on that. Thinking. At least you can as well. When I had that, I had that feeling after my first skydive. But you're dependent upon money, weather, planes. You can't yeah. just go and I'll just keep doing that every night. It's not an option. So yeah, you picked a good one uh, to keep your, your keep that buzzing going. I think so. Yeah. And what is your favourite joke? Oh. Okay. Uh, I think I think it's going to be my mum's favourite joke, which she told me as a kid. Uh, it's so bad. But <laughs> where do baby apes sleep? In an apricot. apricot. Oh, yeah. come on, Callie. Always <laughs> my son, on. My son is Always a primate specializing in Of course. You know, I there mean... You go. He'll be like, Maisie, that was lame. Uh, <laughs> so, not that he listens to my podcast. I don't know who I'm kidding. So... Um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, if there's one bit of life advice you could give to anyone listening, what would it be? Um, I, was, oh, I was trying to think about this, but I think because we've spoken about it a fair bit on this podcast about the unconventional roots into something. Mm-hmm. Um, just I, w- I would just encourage people to keep that in mind. There is no right or wrong way, I think, to doing whatever it is that makes you happy. Mm-hmm. I think as long as it's as long as it makes you happy and as long as you're as long as you're good at it as well. <laughs> but if you're good at it and it makes you happy and you know in, in in yourself that that's what you're meant to do, you do you I always say just you do you. Because everybody told me coming up, oh you've got to do five minutes and then you've got to do 10, then you've got to do 15. And I was thinking in the back of my head the whole time, I've done an hour. I mean, mm. I'm, again, I'm not saying it was it was great, but 
it worked for me to do mm-hmm. it that way. Mm-hmm. I also got told, oh, if you want to cut your teeth on the open mic circuit, you've got to do a gong show. And so I went to go and watch the gong show with my mate um, at the comedy store, and it was absolutely savage. It's and, gladiatorial, and, isn't and, it? Yeah, and also, like, not particularly... It was loads of drunk people holding up a red card just because someone went, hi, I'm from Manchester, or a woman came on, or yeah. somebody was wearing a floral shirt. It was yeah, like, I never, I've never done the gong show for no, exactly that reason. No, you don't need to do it. You yeah. don't need to do it. You just need to work and work and work, like, uh, but, but to a degree that... that you know it's right like don't work yourself into exhaustion but if you know that that's something if you get that feeling that I was talking about a minute ago grab it and 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 run for it like I think that's the only thing I can say because again like we said at the start of this I don't feel like I've had almost enough life experience to give much life advice but from the limited time I have had I think back yourself and you do you your way that was one of my absolute comedy faves Maisie Adam every episode I pick a thing inspired by my guest that I'm going to try my chat with Maisie made me a bit nostalgic for my teenage playing in a band days I'm lucky enough I've actually got a piano at home but I very rarely play it even though from about the age of four all I wanted to do was play the piano that was until drinking cider and kissing boys took over. I should add, by the way, that that was over a decade later. So this week, I am going to put in some hours at the old Joanna. Might even play some Tom Waits and Elvis Costello covers. Who knows? Namaste, motherfuckers, was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, and was produced by Mike Hansen and Karu Shadami for Pod People Productions. Music by Jake Yap. If you've liked today's show, please subscribe now on your favourite podcast app and also rate and review the show. Not because I'm needy and crave external affirmation, but because it helps other people find the show. So that's it for the show for this week. Thank you so much to Maisie for joining me. And thank you to Maisie's mum for providing the inspiration for this episode's theme and for Maisie's haircut. You can find links to what Maisie's up to in the show notes and we will be back in your feed next Monday as always when I will be talking to someone who has shaped some of the biggest comedy careers in the world, Mr. Dave Bernath. You know, perseverance is obviously super important. It maybe is the most important thing of all in any all these fields is just sticking with something for a certain period of time. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.